Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, good morning, Covenant family. Good to see you. If you have a copy of God's Word, join me back in the passage of Scripture that Ellen read for us at the outset of our time together, Matthew chapter 7. If you're a guest with us, my name's Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you uh, in the name of Jesus. So glad that you chose to join us, or if you're worshiping with us online, uh, so glad that you're here as well. Today's going to be a heavy day. I felt it at 9. I feel it again right now uh, in the midst of this service, and, and there are several reasons for that. Oftentimes, a preacher will come to the podium and just understand that it, it's going to be a heavy, hard day. For one thing, just read the text that we're looking at this morning, and just, just read the text. I mean, I mean the, the nature of what we see here means this is going to be difficult, and then when you think about that text in light of so many other things that I'm not sure if you're aware of or not, but, but I'm certainly aware. The things that God is doing culture-wide, the way in which he is blessing his people in places like Asbury. Uh, Pastor Chris and his wife, Michelle, uh, they're part of our staff. They were here. Um, well, actually, they, they had intended originally to take the week off and to be together for, to celebrate their wedding anniversary. Uh, a few things changed in their life, and they ended up not doing what they originally thought they were going to do, but they decided, and he sent me a text last night, and he said, we're going to Wilmore, Kentucky. We're gonna, we just have to see what God's up to uh, with the Asbury Awakening. And, and he and I have been texting back and forth this morning as to some of his experiences last night. Here's, by the way, you want to know if it's a genuine movie of the Holy Spirit or if it's just some manufactured nonsense? Is Jesus at the center of all of it? All right? Not a bunch of foolishness. Jesus. And the second thing is, and Chris told me, he said, this, this is happening. They're starting to shut the services down to anybody under the age of 25, and they have stopped with all of the worship, and they're mobilizing the students for evangelism. That's another way you know that God's Spirit is moving, because he did not design us to keep that to ourselves. Amen? Uh, and so God is working there, and that, that spirit movement is starting to metastasize, if you will. I know that's typically a bad word when we talk about disease, but if the Holy Spirit's doing it, it's a good thing, is it not? And so we just see all of this activity happening, and then we feel, or at least I do, the spiritual warfare that goes on behind the curtain, because the enemy doesn't like it when the God who has already defeated him is moving like that. And so there's just so much raging spiritual warfare going on. And I wonder, how does that affect this church body? And, and how does that affect me? And, and what, what will we make of this? And, and what will become of us? And, where, and there's so many questions that I don't have answers for, and I don't, I don't even know how God's going to move that. And again, I, forgive me, somebody is talking in this building. Would you please not do that? I keep hearing somebody talk. Please stop that. Okay. I, I don't know where it's coming from. I'm not trying to be ugly, but God's word is being preached, and whoever's doing it, please stop. Thank you. All right. We good? All right. We're good. 
And so I, I just, I, I'm thinking about how difficult this is. And then I look back at this text and I go, man, I have a job ahead of me today that I really don't like very much. Because what I have to say, I don't want to say. We're in a series called Surrender. I don't know what it is about the Gregorian calendar that makes us just, you know, when January switches over, all of a sudden we start thinking about New Year resolutions. We start thinking about things we're going to do better and improvements we're going to make in our life. But it, it just tends to happen in January. And so if it's going to happen, we may as well ride that wave, right? And so let's, let's think about what it looks like to surrender fully to the Lord Jesus. That's, that's the question we've been asking based on the assumption that he doesn't want a part of your life. He doesn't want you inviting him to take the wheel. He wants it all. He wants absolutely everything from you. And so the question we want to ask today is, are you really, truly surrendered? Let me tell you why that's a significant question. Because our culture is baptized in partial surrender. There's a fictional couple named Brad and Sophie Camp. If they existed, they would represent a lot of young Christian couples in the world. You'd be able to go to their Instagram page, their Facebook page, and you would find them sitting there on the front steps of their local church with their two young girls with matching dresses, right? All of that. It got 100 likes, got 45 different comments about how wonderful they look. That's the image that they're projecting. And Brad and Sophie are, are in their mid-30s, and they've got those kids that are beautiful and wonderful, and they like to exude you know, who they are as a family, and certainly nothing wrong with that. They try to have dinner whenever their schedules will allow it. And before every meal, of course, they say the blessing. And they take turns kind of going around the, the room. Every time their four-year-old prays, it always kind of brings a tear to their eye because she prays this Johnny Appleseed song that she learned at the faith-based preschool where she goes twice a week during her mom's yoga class. And the, and the prayer goes something like this. Oh, the Lord is so good to me, and I thank the Lord for giving me the things I need, the sun and the rain and the apple seed. The Lord is good to me. And the camp's want faith as a part of their life, as a part of their kid's life. And they come to church about every six to eight weeks, right? Not every week, but they're busy. You know, life is busy. And so they, they try to do it. And, and they will admit to themselves they probably should go more often because every time they go, they, they tend to feel better about themselves. Even their marriage tends to have less tension in it. They're not fighting quite as much. But, but the most important reason they try to make it at least every other month uh, is because Sophie's mother is a little bit of a nag. Uh, the daughters call her Nana. And Nana uh, is a good Southern woman. Grew up kind of where I was, North, North Carolina, South Carolina. And, and she would be mortified for people to find out that her grandchildren don't go to church. Right? It would just be a bad thing. And so Sophie knows that. And so to kind of pipe down on the nagging, they just sort of make sure that they make it to church. Yeah, at least every couple months. What I just described for you is something called cultural Christianity. It is a religion that is practiced by more Americans than any other faith. Evangelical Christianity, Islam, Judaism pale in comparison to the practice I just described for you. You can find members of this sect who are affiliated with Catholic and Protestant churches you can find them in the South. You can find them in the Midwest. You can find them in places like the Panhandle. You can find them on high school football fields throughout my native South where public prayer is still held over loudspeakers before the alma mater and the national anthem. 
And you can find them around family dinner tables. And I'm going to tell you something about these people. They're good people. They're salt-of-the-earth people. A lot of them are, I would call them my people, right? They're not bad people. They're not agnostic or atheist. They're not urban academics who are trying to bust apart and deconstruct the Christian faith with intellectual arguments. They believe in God. They take seriously their traditions, nativity scenes, and Linus reciting the Christmas story and a Charlie Brown Christmas. But here's the thing. Nothing about the faith they practice would be any different if Jesus were not risen from the dead. That's the difference. Because some of you are like, oh, man, you're being kind of critical today, Joel. I mean, hey, what's wrong with Charlie Brown Christmas? Nothing. Nothing. What's wrong with prayer, family prayer around the dinner table? Nothing. I hope you do it. It's a wonderful thing. What's wrong with believing in God? Nothing. So long as it doesn't stop there. The, the difficulty comes when, when people are asked exactly who their God is and, and question why Jesus' coming even, even matters. This is the, the, the essence of cultural Christianity. It admires Jesus. It, it says good things about Jesus. But it doesn't see Jesus as central to the picture. Jesus is there in case my life gets out of order so he can take the wheel, in the words of that great theologian, Carrie Underwood. All right, And then once he's gotten me straightened back on the road, now I can, get my, I, I can take it back now. I got my life. And the near omnipresence of this religion should scare us when we consider the words of Matthew 7. In fact, I want to back up 10 verses. Let's start with verse 13 and 14 because that will actually help set the context for us. These are the words of Jesus. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And I would just remind you that as Jesus speaks these words, in the first century, he's not talking to pagans. He's not talking to Greek philosophers. He's speaking to a Jewish audience, faithful Jews. Matthew, in fact, specifically appropriated Jesus' words in his gospel to be aimed almost exclusively at a Jewish audience audience, which means this is an audience that is 100% monotheist, good, and moral. And he says to those people, most of you are not going to make it. You're not going to make it. And then he'll spend the next six verses telling them that the evidence of genuine faith is not their declaration, but the fruit of the Spirit that comes out of them as a result of their conversion. Paul would later put it this way to the church of Corinth. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. We have the honor and the privilege of celebrating baptisms at our nine o'clock service, people declaring their faith in Christ. What does that mean? It means that I believe Jesus died and was buried and rose again. It also means in putting someone under and bringing them back up that I believe and confess now that the old me is dead and God has raised me to new life. He has converted me. That's what we're talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. And he says to this audience, most of you don't have that. You don't have that. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't hear what Jesus is not saying. Salvation doesn't come by works. Salvation comes by faith. But if that faith is real, you encounter Jesus in a real transformative way, you don't remain unchanged. You don't keep going back to your sin. That is the fruit of a false conversion. And to punctuate that point further, Jesus makes this shocking statement. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father 
who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, worker of lawlessness. So here's the really inconvenient, uncomfortable, unsettling question that is just completely unavoidable. If we're going to take God's word with any degree of seriousness, it's a question before every one of us. Is he talking about me? Is he talking about you? Is that true? Yeah, you, that's, that's between you and the Lord. You have to answer that. Let me give you three elements of Jesus' message here so, so we can get a sense of exactly how we can answer that question best in our own lives. The first element of his message is just shock. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Something like 20 years ago, there was this huge youth event down in Alabama. It was kind of akin to what our youth go to when they go to Reboot. Wonderful uh, gathering, lots of good preaching, a lot of, a lot of energy, a lot of great worship. There's nothing wrong with any of that, except this is like Reboot times 10. There was like 5,000 kids there having a good time, hooping and hollering, clapping, jumping up and down. Hey, have a ball. Nothing wrong with that. But the guy gets up to preach, and he talks to them about what it really means to be fully surrendered to Jesus, to give your life over to Jesus, to stop playing with this, because Jesus ain't playing with you. And this is what you've got to do. You've got to grow in holiness, and you have a desire to be like Jesus. And somewhere in the midst of all that, 5,000 of these kids started clapping and applauding. And he let them finish. And then he said, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. You ever had that situation happen? You don't have to be in public speaking, by the way, to have that happen where you're, you're actually trying to communicate to somebody. They think you're talking about somebody else. And you want to get it done. I, I think the only occupational hazard in that regard that's worse than a preacher would be a mental health professional. The number of professional counselors and psychologists and therapists that I've talked to that say, I'm in the room with this person. I'm trying to get this person to crack, to come through. When I talk about this issue or that issue, they inevitably think I'm talking about somebody else. It's my husband. It can't be me. It's my kids. It can't be me. It's my guy. This is why therapists need therapy. Because they spend hours and hours talking to people, and then they come out of it, they got to go talk to somebody else and go, this is like talking to a dead gum stop sign. Like it just never gets through. And that's what's happening here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those of us who have had this experience are encouraged to know that it happened to Jesus as well. Because when he starts in verse 13 and 14, he goes, the gate is narrow and the way is hard to eternal life. And he's got hundreds, maybe even thousands of people in front of him that are listening to his message. And I can almost imagine the default assumption, oh yeah, boy, I'm sure I'm glad I'm on that narrow road. Which is why he has to continue. He has to continue to try to chip away at so much false assurance. Apparently these people, y'all, it's a good thing. So then in verses 15 to 20, he expands. He starts saying, Here, here's the fruit of the life of someone who's on that narrow road. And apparently, thousands of people still thought, yeah, boy, I'll tell you what. I know my cousin needs to examine himself. My classmate needs to examine himself. 
Every time I encounter an attitude like this, you're always thinking it's got to be somebody else. It couldn't possibly be me. I, I think about an experience I used to have as a young preacher. Uh, I was pastoring this church right outside of Louisville, Kentucky, really small church. And, and, and so being a small church, I had an advantage and a luxury there that I don't have here. I got to make almost every hospital visit and, and I actually enjoyed it. Now, church this size, that's impossible. So, and you know, you guys know that it's a part of our culture here. If, if I, if I'm actually there to see you, uh, you're either on my staff or you're one of our elders or you've, you're in really bad shape. Right? It was just, in fact, on occasion, one of our deacons or another member of our pastoral staff is, I'll make that run, I'll do this, and, and I, may, I get a little extra time, or it's somebody that I happen to know, and I go, hey, oh, no, I got this one, let me go. And the number of times in the last seven years, I've walked through the hospital door to some of you, and you freak out because you're like, is it that bad? Like, no, it's really not that bad, right? But I, I, I used to do I used to do every one of those, and, and it was it was cool. And, and here's what I learned: there was a pattern that I would go in to let's say Baptist Hospital East on the east side of Louisville, Kentucky, and I would walk into the hospital room with into the prep room actually back when you could do that before when they're prepping them for surgery, they're getting ready to go put them under. And I mean, we're minutes away from them opening you up and doing whatever they got to do. And I would I'm holding hands, I'm praying with them. And, and, and there would be somebody look up at me and smile and say, thank you for coming, Pastor. And, and how many times did I hear a phrase that sounded something like this? I'm doing just fine. The Lord is with me. Oh, and besides, they tell me I got the best doctor in the country. Cool. Pray, I finish, wash up, go across the street, go, go downtown to University of Louisville Hospital, make another visit. Same thing. How you doing? I know this is a big procedure, right? Pastor, it's so thanks so much for coming. The Lord is with me. Oh, and they tell me I got the best doctor in the country. And I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but it eventually hit me. They can't all be the best doctor in the country, can they? No, they can't. Somewhere in that mix of medical professionals is the guy who flunked organic chemistry, and he's working on you. All right, and they may have told you he was the best. He ain't the best, right? He's just like, what happened to the guy that just barely skated by the skin of his teeth through medical school? Where's that guy at that he, he got done with his five years of residency and they're not even sure if he's qualified, but the surgeons are so tired of putting up with his nonsense. They're just like, just, just get him out of here, right? Where are those guys? They can't all be, right? And it just makes sense, right? Not everybody can be the best. Otherwise, best doesn't mean anything. Think about that when you look at this. Narrow is the way. Narrow is the way that leads to life. It simply can't be true that all of us are on it. But like us, this crowd doesn't get it. So Jesus finally speaks as directly as he's going to speak. Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because you are standing in this crowd using all the right language, believing all the right things, does not mean that you belong to me. Some of you don't belong to me. In fact, most of you don't belong to me. That's hard. That's hard. What are, so what are we to make of that? And, and, and how do I know this? Furthermore, well, he goes on. He says, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You know me. You follow me. You surrendered to me and belong to me. There's some tangible evidence if you really know him. I'm going to come back to what that is in just a bit. But i got to tell you what scares me. 
as a pastor who has done the overwhelming majority of my work in ministry inside the United States is that we have precisely reversed this approach. By and large, churches all over the country struggling to identify as many people as possible as a Christian with questions like this, what did you do? And listen, part of what we're doing in our small groups right now is helping people to talk about their faith with others, helping people to invite other people to believe in Jesus, to, to pray, to receive Christ. That's what we want. But the foundation of your faith is not something you do. It's not. It's something God does in you that you can't get over. That's what conversion is. Conversion is not praying a prayer. Conversion is not confession. Conversion is not, it, it's when God does something in and through you that you can't get over. All right? How many ex-fundamentalists have I had to struggle with in, in, in a loving way because it, it breaks my heart? When I, how you doing with your, your relationship with God? Well, I hope I'm okay. Well, what do you mean you hope? Well, I had this preacher, and he told me, you see, open up my Bible. See, I got, you see that date I wrote in there? Yeah, all right. Well, I, had a, I, I prayed one, one day when I was a kid, and, that, and the preacher that led me and everything told me, write that date in my Bible, and if I ever doubted my salvation, I just need to open up my Bible and look at that date and remember what I did. And all I can think of is, so some preacher... And some guy in my line of work told you that your assurance comes not from the scriptures itself, but something you wrote in there? Did he get his ordination out of a bubblegum machine? Where'd that come from? Extra biblical fundamentalism. That's where it came from. Listen, God, God's word is sufficient. God's word tells us it's not my confession. It is the power that produces that confession and that prayer that leads me to eternal life, and it's anchored not in something I did in the 1970s or 80s, but in a bloody cross and an empty tomb from 2,000 years ago. That's where the ground of my faith is. That's what Jesus is calling these people back to. You've got your assurance in the wrong place. And especially, you need to check yourself if you have not changed. Any of your confessions don't really mean anything. And my great fear Every time I come to passages like this, is that there will be people, good people, at least as good as me, people I love, salt of the earth people, 50,000 years from this moment, you will be separated from God because you slept through passages like this one. You just slept through it. Listen, shock doesn't feel good, I know. But the Lord Jesus is saying shocking things here. We're either going to listen to them or we're not. You need to allow yourself to be shocked into reality. That's the first element. The second element of this is this. There's a great misunderstanding that Jesus is trying to correct. It's the one who does the will of my Father. Again, salvation is not by works. You can't work your way to God. It is a grace that is evidenced by wholesale change. Some of these people apparently thought, well, I've done some good stuff. And so he says in verse 22, on, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we, notice that emphasis, where's your assurance? Well, I did, me, we, we prophesied, we cast out demons, we did many mighty work. We have served you with great devotion. Do you, do you notice the subtle but eternally important difference here? 
all these people saying, look what I did. And Jesus, by contrast, saying, did you do the will of my Father? Were you empowered by the Spirit to do the will of my Father? Jesus is pointing to what God does through us when we truly belong to him. These people all want to point to a self-made spiritual resume. Look at my charisma. Look at what we have accomplished. Look at all the things we did. And we did it in your name. This boasts of great religion, but not true faith. Frankly, it's why so many people in my line of work over the last five years have just absolutely shipwrecked their faith. It's because the church looked at charisma and mistook that for the presence of the Holy Spirit. The hair stands up on the back of your neck and you think that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, gentleness, self-control. Men have disqualified themselves from Ravi Zacharias to Johnny Hunt, to someone actually very recently, very close to me, who has broken my heart. And it, it, I'll tell you what it's about. It's about the spiritual resume. Preachers and theologians that are going to get to the end of their lives or the end of eternity, shocked to find themselves outside the kingdom because they live their entire lives with this misunderstanding. Jesus does have their spiritual resume, and he's about as impressed with that as he is with the one he got from Judas. And Judas, by the way, by human standards, out of the 12, he certainly would have had the most impressive resume. What is it that God is looking for here? That's the question we ought to be asking, because we live in a culture, all of this happens, guys, because we live in a church culture that loves the image more than the reality. Lord, look at the books I sold. Lord, look at the crowds that came. Look at the miracles that happened. None of it based in a genuine faith out of the heart. Reinhold Niebuhr identified this message a century ago. He said, is it a God without wrath who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the administrations of a Christ with no cross? And that's why at the end of the age, Jesus is going to look at a lot of people, including people at my, in my line of work, and call them what he called these people, workers of lawlessness because of a misunderstanding that has dangerously permeated the Western church. And it's this, confusing the gifts of the Spirit with the fruit of the Spirit. They are not the same thing. They're not. We think if somebody can preach the doors off a barn or write a book that sells millions or attract large crowds or do things, that that makes them anointed. And listen, many truly anointed people do exactly those things. But that's not what makes them anointed. Now, you may not be as alert as I am to the plague of abuse scandals that has just rocked the church throughout the United States over the, the last five years and just blown the top off of this church culture, more interested in the image than in the reality. And it scares me because it reminds me every time one of these things gets, the cover gets blown off of it, I am reminded once again what Jesus told us. There is nothing you can hide that will not be revealed. Or as Dan Dorner, one of our consulting firm principals who's worked really well with our staff over the years, he puts it this way, who you really are when nobody is looking is exactly who everyone is going to see when God decides it's time. That's the difference between gift and 
fruit. All right? Gifts are largely outward. Fruit works its way outward, but it's primarily inward. And that, that misunderstanding, if the shock value of Jesus' words don't wake you up, they will have eternal consequences. That brings us to the third element of this message, the consequences. Verse 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, worker of lawlessness. So I want you to see three declarations that are, that are packed into this one statement. The first declaration of this, confession is no substitute for conversion. You can confess Jesus as Lord all you want. Jesus said, talk is cheap. It's cheap. And you doing that is not the same. Confession is a good thing, but it's not the same thing as conversion. By the way, it's not the same thing as repentance. It's not the same thing as restitution. It's not the same thing as reconciliation. All different stuff. This is a great misunderstanding. It's why, it's why people get angry sometimes in the church is because they conflate all that stuff and then they do something horrible to another member of the body and then when you go to hold them accountable for that, they're like, whoa, 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 I repented. It's only been 15 minutes. You repented? Yeah, I said I was sorry. Yeah, that ain't repentance. That's confession. Confession is good. It's a great start. Great start. There's more to be done here, right? And Jesus says that they talk is cheap. Those in relationship with me will commit to me with their whole lives. If anybody is in Christ, a new creation. So you can't encounter this God and walk away unchanged. If I came in here late today, and the non-staff elders, that's five men. I don't have a boss here, but I do have five of them. And the five of them collectively that, that's where my accountability comes from. So if I show up 15 minutes late and everything's knocked out of whack because Joel didn't get here on time, and they're like, all right, Pastor, we love you. What, what's the deal? What do you, it's Sunday morning. comes every seven days. What's going on? Uh, can you imagine if I just said, guys, I'm, I am so sorry. Let, let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what happened. On the way here from my house, something flew out of the bed of my truck, and, and it was really precious to me. And so I pulled over to the side of the road to get it. And when I stepped out in the road to pick it up, I looked up and this big transfer truck coming right at me and I just couldn't miss it. It just mowed me down right out here on Shepherdstown Pike. And, and so I, I had to go home and change clothes because my shirt was ripped up a little bit. And I had to, I, I had to do, like, y'all are looking like, that's ridiculous, right? You're right. Why? Yeah, yeah. Two men, these five men, because they're not dumb, well, understanding, you know, one of two things is happening here. Either number one, Pastor Joel's a, a pathological liar. Or number two, Pastor Joel has lost his mind. How do they know that? Because you don't get hit by something that big and powerful and it not do something to you. And yet, we play church in a way that allows us to think we can encounter the living God and walk away unchanged. You can't do that. Go up on a mountaintop somewhere and sing your guts out and pray. And all that, listen, all that's good. All that's wonderful. But if you come down off that mountain and God has not changed you, I don't know who you encountered on that mountain, but it wasn't the living God. It is he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now that experience is available to everybody. But you truly encounter the power and presence of the living God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You don't just walk away from that unchanged and go back to your sin. Confession is not conversion. Here's the second thing Jesus is telling us here. Second declaration, 
religion is no substitute for relationship. One of the things we see here, he's like, look, I, you know how much it means for you to say, I know Jesus by itself? It means absolutely nothing because anybody can say that. Anybody can call Jesus Lord. Anybody. The question is this, and, and it's embedded in what we read in verse 23, I never knew you. See, that's the question. Not whether I know Jesus. Does Jesus know me? Not does he know who I am. Of course he does. But is there an intimate, this word is the word that translates the Hebrew word in Genesis chapter 2 that says Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore a son. So it's obviously, that obviously means more than Adam knew who Eve was, right? There's an intimate level of knowledge all right, and, and in this context, it would not relate to physical intimacy, but it does relate to a specific kind of intimacy. I know you. You know me. We are acquainted. We are familiar with each other. I, 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 you are my beloved. That's what he means. I never knew you. If I decided this afternoon, you know what, I think I want to go pay President Biden a visit. You know, you just... I mean, the White House is like, what, an hour and 15 minutes from here driving? Did you know you can't just walk up and ring the bell? Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's like the man's got stuff to do or something. It's just crazy. And so if I drove down there and found a place to park over behind Blair House or maybe down to Constitution Hall, and then I walked around the corner to the, to the Pennsylvania Avenue on the north side, and I walked up to those uniformed secret service, and I said, I'd like to speak to the president. How do you think that's going to go? I'm sorry, sir, he's not available today. That's how it would start. Yeah, we, he's, he's not available for people to just walk in. He's, he's responsible for 340-plus million people. He's, he don't have time for you today, okay? But I know him. And by the way, I do. I know President Biden. Now, we're not best friends, and I've never met him personally. But I know who he is. I mean, that ought to count for something, right? I know him. By this point, uniform Secret Service, his, his right hand's moving back toward his sidearm, and he's backing up just a little bit, right? It's getting a little bit more intense. My declaration doesn't mean squat in front of the North Lawn of the White House, but you know what would mean something? Is when the, the tension starts to escalate between me and those guys, all of a sudden, the President of the United States steps out of that north entrance, surrounded by more Secret Service, and he points to me, and he says, I know that man. Let him in. Brothers and sisters, that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Now everything, his hand's not on his sidearm anymore. Now he's like, let me get the door for you, sir. Everything changes, not because I know him, but because he knows me. Guys, that's true of Jesus as well. Does he know you? It, it, are you among his beloved? That's the question that's being asked here. Religion is no substitute for that, for that transformative relationship. And nothing could be more or should be more frightening to any of us than the prospect of stepping into eternity and hearing these words, not from the most powerful man in the world, but from the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I don't know you. You don't belong to me. Here's the third declaration. Service is no substitute for salvation. Like I said, you can't work your way up to God. 
Your best day and mine, Isaiah says, are like filthy rags. That's a Hebrew euphemism for used feminine products, just in case you were wondering how graphic the Old Testament prophets sometimes are. On your best day, that's what God sees. On my best day, that's what God sees. This isn't about me working my way up. This isn't about the miracles I performed or what I did or or even how many other people were changed by it. Because even if you could work your way up to God, the only thing, again, because of the level of your sin and mine, the only thing you'd find at the top of that ladder is a consuming fire, and you don't want that. You don't want that. And I've been praying this weekend as I got ready for this message, for those of you watching, for those of you that are here in the building, for those that were in the 9 o'clock, that that there would be people awakened. I I don't know who those people are. That's above my pay grade. But but there are people, and we know it because the Scriptures tell us that would be awakened from their spiritual sleep because if you don't, 10 billion years from this moment, you will still feel the consequences of that. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for you. And so I don't believe in hell. I don't care. Your belief is irrelevant. It exists. It exists. And it is forever. If that seems harsh, then it just seems harsh. You cannot sin against an infinite being and expect the punishment for that to be finite. That's why hell is forever. For God's sake, wake up. Whoever you are, whoever I'm looking at, that the Holy Spirit is pricking at your soul right now, wake up. You know, I've had this, I've been alive long enough now that I've I've had this experience over and over and over and over. And and in case you haven't noticed, I I really am getting to a point where I just, I just don't care anymore. I love y'all. I hope you know that, but I I just don't care. Like when I was in my twenties, I didn't care either, but that was because I was a young jack wagon and I didn't have any better sense than that. And then I I got into my thirties and from 30 up until, I don't know, a year or two ago, I tried to be a little bit more circumspect and have a little more decorum. I just turned 51, like just a couple weeks ago. I don't give a crap anymore. I have reached that stage of life. My poor wife tells me you're going to be impossible at 80. It's just going to be awful. You're just going to be a crotchety old guy. But I think there's a, there's a side of me, again, because of the experience now of coming up on my third, starting soon, my fourth decade of preaching the gospel. I was thinking about this at the 9 o'clock. I, I remember after 9-11, 2001, how, how many churches were just filled to the brim. And then I looked out at my audience, and I thought some of these people weren't born yet. And, and so I, you, don't, you don't remember that. But, but a lot of our staff, some of our staff were actually still here at that moment. This, this part of our facility, I think, if I remember correctly from the staff, had just been built. They're like, we couldn't get the people in here. It was just filled to capacity. Why? Because the nation had experienced a tragedy, since we, that's one that we had not experienced since the War of 1812, and everybody was afraid, and everybody was crying out to God. How many people who packed this building, who pried out to God, have long since forgotten everything they said to him on that day? How many people, when they were teenagers, went to a camp on a mountaintop somewhere and prayed some prayer, and today their life is indistinguishable from the world? And I know some of you, well, that's just a carnal Christian. I dare you to find that statement in God's Word. It ain't there. You're either of the spirit or you're of the flesh. 
When it comes to Jesus, you've got to get the fence pole out of your butt. That's what the Bible teaches. You either belong to him or you don't. I'm not saying you don't struggle with sin. I'm not saying that there's not occasionally some backstepping and then you've got to repent, you've got to get your life. I'm not saying there's not struggle. I'm saying over the course of a Christian life, there is forward momentum and there is change and there is a heart change that, that cries out to him. How many adults found themselves, how many times have I gotten a call as a pastor? Not just here, but any church I've ever been at. Somebody I never see. And then they call me up. Pastor, I've been cheating on my wife, and she finally found it on my phone. And well, we got to have all this help, and we got to have counseling, and we got to have this, and we got to have that. And we, would you do this? And oh, oh God, Pastor, I don't know what I'm going to do. I got a porn addiction, or I've got this or that. Oh, Pastor, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've, got, I've gotten into this mess, I've gotten into that mess. And I could just about, here's how you know. And again, I'm just speaking from about 30 years of experience here. If it ain't real, it's going to last three weeks. And then they're going to be right back where they were. How many times have I experienced that? How y'all doing? You need some more help? Oh, no, we're good now. We're good now. Really? Okay, after you called me at 2 o'clock in the morning, you got my staff all in a big flurry, finding you resources and everything. And I, Oh, but now you're cool. Leave you alone. That ain't real. That ain't real. That's regret. I mean, it's good to regret. Although, oftentimes, it's not regret over what you did so much as that you got caught. Genuine conversion, brothers and sisters, looks very, very different from that. How many people like that in, a, in just a sense of desperation? Jesus, take the wheel! And three weeks later, they've taken that wheel back. Because they're not interested in surrender. They just want to get their life back to normal. How many people are not truly following Jesus? Again, I'm talking about good people. Not criminals. Not people you'd want to have as a neighbor. People that it just breaks my heart to share this message because I love you. People like the camp family that I described earlier. People who would make good neighbors, but people who are not right with God. And they will never be until they give him everything, still separated from him by their sin. How many, how many of those people are looking at me right now? I asked you a question last week. We were challenging each other to share our faith. Who's your one? Who's that individual that you want to see come to Christ? I want to, answer, I want to ask that question a little differently this morning. Are you the one that you're looking for? Is it you? When you read these words, is he talking about you? For the sake of your eternal soul, come to him today. Come to him today. Let's pray together. I want to ask our deacons, elders, anybody who's available, you got a lanyard, I want you under a cross. And we want to give people an opportunity today to respond. You know, we, we did a baptism service at 9. Strangely enough, I actually have another change of clothes back there. The invitation is open. And you, we'll do it today. We'll let you publicly declare your faith in Christ. You just need to come to somebody, ask them what it means. What does it look like to follow Jesus? I've been faking it till I make it. I've been playing games until I heard a message today out of Matthew 7 that told me Jesus don't play. And you now want to get serious with the Lord. Father in heaven, 
blow with your Holy Spirit through this place. Father, I ask that as someone helpless to turn that spigot on or control it in any way. Nobody has that power in this building. Nobody has that power, for that matter, in Asbury, where you have poured your spirit on your sons and daughters, these young Gen Z college students that I have no doubt are going to change the world one day just through simple acts of faithfulness and obedience, God. Transform our lives and our hearts for the sake of your name. Glorify yourself in these next few moments as your spirit convicts hearts and moves people to obedience. Have your way with us in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.